Welcome to Scientific American Science Talk, posted on July 21st, 2017. I'm Steve Mursky. On this episode... But Helicoprion's teeth did not grow on the jaw, and the world was a, a single tooth that grew in the middle of the shark's jaw. It looked like a saw blade in the middle of that lower jaw coming at you. That's Susan Ewing. She's a journalist and author, and her new book is Resurrecting the Shark, a scientific obsession and the mavericks who solved the mystery of a 270 million year old fossil. And with Shark Week starting on July 23rd, we figured this was a great way to get into the spirit of giant chomping cartilaginous fish, such as Helicoprion, which is technically not really a shark, but it's so close, as we'll get into in the discussion, and which is distinguished by its bizarre whirl of teeth, its spiral of chompers, which is really just one massive tooth that looks like dozens. Uh, let me let Ewing explain. She's based in Bozeman, Montana, so we talk by phone. Who would have thought there was such a thing as this oh as this beast? Nobody, nobody would have thought there was such a thing. That's why they could not figure out what it was. That's there was no analog, no context to it, and and. Um, the thing that was so confusing about Helicoprion that confused so many people was that that tooth whorl was a, a midline structure. So it was like a like a pizza cutter stuck in a quart of ice cream in the middle of the shark's lower jaw. And it's um, it's a shark-like animal, but I'm just going to call it a shark because it looked like a shark. Um, and so there's no other animal that has something like that, and so that's why it was so confusing. And a picture really is worth a thousand words, or in in the case of your book, because you're you're a very efficient writer, maybe about three hundred words. Um, <laughs> when you see the the image, the the uh, illustration of the shark, then it becomes clear. But what we're talking about is, you know, we're we're all used to teeth that are a. a along the same line as the opening of our mouth. But for these guys, the teeth are actually perpendicular, like it looks like a buzzsaw coming at Imagine the shark coming at you, and there's a buzzsaw that's in a vertical position that's coming at you. It's totally bizarre. Right, right. And that the, the teeth don't spin, so the buzzsaw doesn't spin, but you're exactly right. Shark teeth, modern shark teeth, the teeth grow on the jaws. It's like this conveyor belt of teeth that, that form along the jaw and on the jaw, and then they, they fall off. Modern sharks, you know, most people know they shed thousands of teeth in their lifetime, but Helicoprion's teeth did not grow on the jaw. The, and the whorl was a, a single tooth that grew in the middle of the shark's jaw, just like you said, it looked like a looked like a like a saw blade in the middle of that lower jaw coming at you. And it's uh, technically it's a single tooth, although it looks to us like many teeth arranged on a circle. But in reality, they all have the same substrate, and they're just the crowns of of uh, they're just many crowns coming up from that substrate. Right. That's right. So it was one continuous root, so one continuous tooth root that grew in a 
in a spiral like a like the head of a fiddlehead fern, and the the crowns that erupted off the tooth um, were tooth crowns. So they they look like sharp teeth, but they're crowns, and it's it's kind of like. Um, I use the example, it's like mushrooms are the fruiting bodies of the mycelium, the roots under the soil. So it's it was one tooth root with multiple crowns. And this creature lived 270 to 280 million years ago. Yep. So they're not going to be coming at you if you're at the beach. Right. <laughs> but what's fascinating is... The, the story of the science of figuring this out, that's really the wonderful story here that, that you have woven. And, and it starts with the, the first discoveries of the fossils that, that look like, I mean, there are a lot of spirals in nature and, mm-hmm. and people didn't even realize that these were necessarily teeth when the first fossils were found. They look like, uh, you know, the, the other kinds of spiraled critters that are out there. Yeah, a lot of people, a lot of people mistook them for ammonites. Uh, if you know what those are, they're, um, ancient sort of relatives of the, of the nautiloids. And so they grew in spiral shells and they're, they're fairly common fossils. And, um, they were in the cephalopod family, like the squid octopus family. And so, they have a really similar shape. And so at first glance, they look like ammonites, but then you look closer and you see these big teeth on them. They're just bristling with teeth along the, along the edges. Yeah. And eventually, I mean, there are so many researchers that you mention in the book going back into the fossil hunters and researchers going back into the 19th century. And eventually, I forget which one figures out, wait a minute, these are teeth. Karpinski, Alexander Karpinski, he was the, he was a Russian, a very esteemed Russian geologist, and he loved oddball fossils. And he, you know, his students, he had a reputation for, you know, having an open door for anything that was weird. So his students would come to him or his colleagues would come to, to him if they couldn't figure something out. And they said, you know, what, what is this? And so, um, actually, a, a school inspector, um, Mr. Besanov, somehow came into possession of the first full spiral that had been discovered. And who knows who actually found it. It was probably a limestone miner somewhere in the Ural Mountains of Russia. And so Mr. Besanov just thought that these fossils might be important. And so he crated them up and shipped them all the way to St. Petersburg to Karpinsky and so they landed on Karpinski's desk, and he he is the one who identified and recognized that this fossil was from an animal that had not previously been identified. And so Karpinski is the one who named the beast Helicoprion from um, the Greek Helico for spiral and prion for saw. And throughout the book, you see such good behavior on the part of so many scientists kapinski being being a i mean you see bad behavior also but yeah. kapinski being an example when when he writes up this very extensive monograph he points out all the things that he does not know and yeah. all all the uh, he basically lays out a 
a research plan for the rest of the scientific community. Yeah, that's exactly right. He was he was such an incredible man of great intellect and he also had a wonderful singing voice as as I read in the research, but yeah, he did and he he was very forthcoming with with what he believed he could say with certainty and what he, you know, just threw out there for for other people to think about. His monograph on helicoprion came out in 1899, and so most of the scientific inquiry really took off in the early 1900s. But we we also want to give a lot of credit to Fanny Hitchcock. Yes, thank you. Who had, she had to be a remarkable woman because she was, first of all, a woman in, in this time in science when it was almost uniformly men, and she's also uh, not really affiliated with an institution, so she's freelancing. Exactly, and I I could not find out where she was educated, and or you know we don't know today, but she came from a, a prominent family, and she just kind of showed up on the scene, fully educated, and she was the one who really had the key to the thinking about. Um, it was actually before helicoprion. There was another. An, another genus of Paleozoic shark-like animals that had tooth blades, and Adestus. So Adestus was a different animal, but the Adestus fossils had been found before Helicoprion, and they were also these midline structures. And what was so odd about them is that most shark teeth have a front and a back, so you can tell which is the sort of cheek side and which is the throat side. But these Adestus fossils and then later Helicoprion fossils, they were symmetrical. So they were bilaterally symmetrical. So if you, if you cut a tooth down the middle, there, there's no, there was no front and back. And so that's what had everybody really scratching their heads because there's just nothing like that. So Fanny Hitchcock is the one who proposed that these were midline structures, but it was such a radical idea with no analog, that the scientists, they poo-pooed her, and they said, well, while well, Miss Fanny Hitchcock is a, is a wonderful student of these things, you know, she has no idea what she's talking about, basically. But she did turn out to be the first person who identified that, and then that was a clue that helped them um, figure out helicoprion down the, down the line. It's really an incredible leap of of imagination to realize that the teeth are going to be symmetrical if you rotate them 90 degrees and suddenly they're this pizza cutter in the mouth rather than a set of chompers in the mouth. Right, right. It really, really forced people to sort of think out outside the outside the tooth box. It it was very, very unusual. And and uh, I mean, that's why it was such a mystery for so long and why so many scientists threw themselves into contortions, keeping that tooth spiral out of the animal's mouth. They put it on its head. They put it on, you know, curling up over its nose. They put it on its tail. They put it on its back. They put it, they wanted to put it everywhere except in the mouth. And a few of them said, you know, who could imagine a monster, you know, with something like this in its mouth? Because it was so big, too. These tooth whorls, 
an average size tooth whorl is the size of of a of a large dinner platter and they get bigger than that so it's hard to imagine something like that in an animal's mouth and and that was the big you know that was the final cliff to jump on on really pinning down where the structure was on animal and how it worked and the book also if you're at all interested in a in a quick primer on the history of geology you get it in this book as well and one of the things that we learn about is the fact that you're going to find the same fossils in the same layers uh, laid down over geological time and this became a big clue because the the whorls of teeth were being found in the same layer as a lot of squid fossils mm-hmm and as you said in the book, that ain't a coincidence. That's right. like saying it's a coincidence to find the fox footprints outside the chicken coop. Right, exactly. And and that was one of the challenges about writing the book is the scientific nuances of helicoprion are so interesting. But in order to really understand how cool they are and 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 really get the importance of it, you have to understand basics of geology and paleontology. And so I really wanted people to understand, um, you know, to come along on this journey. And so that's why, you know, I, I tried to share the basics of the basics of geology and strata and um, key fossils. They, you can identify the age of rocks by what fossils are in them um, and that and that's been knowledge that's accumulated over time through going out and finding all these fossils and then looking at them and go oh well, well look at this you know this particular set of fossils always seems to be in this particular rock layer and i mean it's just it's it's really it's really interesting and it gives you such an appreciation for earth processes it's just you know it's just really cool I mean, it's this gigantic planet-wide jigsaw puzzle that a f- that a few people over the course of their lives and and we're talking about generations of people at this point have decided to try to work on together, uh, knowing that they're not going to get it together in their own lifetimes, even for a lot of them. Right. I I say, um, you know, paleontology is not for the impatient. It's and the same with geology. You just, you know, you just have to tinker your way along and putter your way through and and learn and absorb and observe and um, and collaborate. Like you said, even across generations. You know, this is all cumulative knowledge that that was set in motion as far at back. Steno, he was a Danish uh, scientist in the in the 1600s, and he's the one who first was was sort of bold enough to say, "Wait a minute, these he was finding these big um, shark teeth. You know, people were finding fossilized shark teeth, but they didn't know they were fossils. There was no such thing as fossils." And he's the one. Um, some fishermen called him down to look at a great white shark that they had that they had caught and brought to shore and he looked at the teeth and he thought wait a minute these are these look just like these tongue stones that we find in the rocks and and so all the way from steno you know this has been cumulative knowledge as people 
people learn more and and we have new new tools for understanding um it's really it's a it's a big pyramid of people who who contribute to the science and it's scientists and lay people and amateur fossilists and and everything so it's a it's a big group effort science is and in the last really in the last 10 15 years the scientists who've been working on it who are still alive some of them uh have been fortunate enough to get a really good handle on what was going on with this creature and why those squid and the helicoprion were found in the same layers because this device that evolution cobbled together this perpendicular saw in the shark's mouth and we'll talk about whether or not it was really a shark in a minute but it's perfect for squid it's perfect for grabbing and eating squid and it's also as uh, one of the scientists you quote in the book says it's almost like a uh, a snail fork for creatures with shells yes exactly so you can imagine if you've seen ammonite so you've got this shelled cephalopod so a shelled um animal with tentacles out the back of it like a like an octopus so those guys they swim through jet propulsion so they're swimming 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 away from a helicoprion and the helicoprion is chasing 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 and so the cephalopods they have their tentacles hanging out of the of the back swimming away and so we can imagine that helicoprion would swim up on one and grab the tentacles and so those teeth in the in the world, the tooth crowns, they would snag that those tentacles and, and helicoprion would bite down and the and the teeth would drag the cephalopod out of its shell, sort of like you like you stick a fork in a in a escargot that you get at a restaurant, you stick a fork in and just pluck it out. That's what they think that helicoprion one of the ways that it used its its whorl. But Helicoprion discovered that uh, it had become so specialized that when something happened, let's assume uh, for the sake of argument that the food supply diminished, mm-hmm. uh, but there could have been other reasons, as you point out in the book, uh, it's stuck. It's in an evolutionary cul-de-sac at this point. Mm-hmm. It can't go back to uh, trying to feed on anything else. Right. It was so highly specialized that tremendous specialization of the tooth whorl probably both made it very successful and also led to its eventual extinction. So when the prey base was really strong, this is, you know, what people are thinking, but so the prey base was really strong. Helicoprion was, was the king apex predator of the day of, of the middle Permian and it just ate its way to the top of the food chain. But then if something, if there was a little wobble in in planetary conditions and something happened to the prey base, it couldn't, you know, it wasn't like a coyote or something that could scavenge or hunt or, or raven, you know, these great animals that that can survive anywhere. It was too specialized. And so they think that that's why it eventually went extinct. And, and Helicoprion lived during the middle of the Permian, and a lot of people know that at the end of the Permian period, there was um, the biggest extinction that the planet has known yet. And But as far as scientists know, Helicoprion was not 
its extinction was not related to the great end permian extinction it just it just had its day and then then it was gone and as far as we know no other organism has tried to repeat this evolutionary experiment and come up with the vertical teeth that's right there are a group of chondrichthyan fish cartilaginous fish with sort of central tooth plates in their ma- in their mouths but they're tooth plates they're, so they're they're not like helicoprion's tooth whorl at all not even not even close let's talk about because we're going to have purists who say it's not a shark mm-hmm. and and according to our 21st century taxonomical classifications no it's technically not a shark we admit that although Shark Week itself on, what is it, the Discovery Channel? Yep, starts yeah. this Sunday. Right. They have done programs about this animal during Shark Week. So for them, it's close enough because, boy, it sure would have looked like a shark. And as you point out in the book, what the ecological matrix is today is sufficiently different from what it was 270 million years ago, that this thing was, for all intents and purposes back then, a shark. Right, that's right. It passes, Helicoprion passes the shark gestalt test. You know, it it was big. It was, you know, bigger, twice the size of a great white shark. It was a big animal. It was the apex predator. It had these big teeth or tooth crowns, if you want to get technical. And it had a a shark-like tail, you know, they think. They don't know that for sure, but it behaved like a shark. And at that time, the group of chondrichthians, and chondrichthians are just the cartilaginous fish, chondrichthians split off from the bony fish over 400 million years ago. And, And there's an argument on whether the chondrichthians split off from the bony fish or the bony fish might have split off from the chondrichthians. Anyway, it happened, you know, like 400 plus million years ago. So the the branches split off then. That's why, you know, sharks are so other. We humans come from bony fish a long time ago. And so we've, we just have no relation to sharks. We, they're just, they're just the other. And so the, um, the group that is now the true sharks was in the minority in the in Paleozoic times before the Permian extinction. What we know now as true sharks, like the great white sharks and mako sharks and thresher sharks, they were the minority before the Permian extinction. And these, the other group of cartilaginous fish, chondrichthians, which are the subclass Holocephalon, they were the major group at that time, and they were incredibly diverse far more diverse than what sharks are today. And they came in all shapes and sizes, all kinds of teeth, um, all kinds of habitats, all kinds of behaviors. And and scientists know a fair amount about these early chondrichthians because there's some um, a couple of really incredible fossil deposits that reveal great fossils about them. But, but anyway, so because of the way helicoprions jaws were attached to its skull, it technically is not a true shark, and it is not in the lineage 
that became the true sharks. It is in the lineage that eventually became the ratfish, which are these weird little little creatures that are, uh, there's just not very many of them today. There's there's like over a thousand species of of true sharks today, and only 40 species remaining of these holocephalons, or what we call ratfish. And, and it's all about jaw attachment, which is really um, technical. But anyway, that was a long time ago. And so I feel, right, the purists really don't like like us to call helicoprion a shark, but it's really hard not to call it a shark because it looked like a shark. And the title of the book is Resurrecting the Shark because what were you going to call it? Resurrecting the, it's not really a ratfish? Right, exactly. Resurrecting the holocephalon. I know, and I had this conversation with a number of people, and um, it just—I ha- I just had to sort of grip my teeth and go, "Well, okay, it's going to be the one thing that the scientists are really going to not like very much." If uh, if Linnaeus was swimming around 270 million years ago, he probably would have said, "That's a shark." He, I think he would have. I definitely think he would have. It's like, you know, if it quacks like a duck. Exactly. You, you, right, right. You have to, you know, you have to, you have to call it as you see it. So let's talk about Ray Troll. Yeah. Because he is such a central figure to the book, and he's not technically a scientist, but it was really his vision and his energy that kept a lot of this research going and created a, a, a fraternity of researchers who were working on this. Yeah. Ray, Ray ran across a helicoprion fossil in the 90s, and he became obsessed by it. And he just, you know, as, a, as an artist, and he was working on a book about ancient sea life. And so you know, he was interested in, in these things anyway. And plus, as a visual artist, he saw that spiral and then saw the teeth. And he was, he just was gobsmacked by it. And he just, it became a true obsession for him. And tell and, everybody about his, his probably his most famous work, which I didn't even realize I had hanging in my house for the last 20 years. Right. The, 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 the piece that really put Ray on the map initially was a originally a T-shirt, and it was uh, called "Spawn Till You Die," and it has a a skull with a with a salmon sort of crossbones. So it looks like a human skull with salmon crossbones and little pink naked people all the way around it. And and he, you know, he he supported his family in the early days by creating these crazy punny t-shirts and posters um like you know bass awkwards and and uh you know i can't remember some of the other ones but you know usually involving bars and fish or you know crazy things but that's uh that's how ray was supporting his family in the early days yeah and i read this in your book i said wait a minute i have that I have that spawn till you die on a postcard that somebody sent me a long time ago and I dredged it up and, and so there it was. And, uh, so people may be familiar with that, uh, example of his work. So go on and, and, and tell us more about how he became the helicoprion, uh, wrangler. Yeah. So, so when he, after he saw that fossil in the LA County Museum basement, 
um, someone showed it to him. Um, his uh, paleontologist was was taking him on a tour of the museum, showed it to him, <clears throat> and he said, you know, he said it, it this tooth whorl it belonged to a to an ancient shark called Helicoprion, but nobody knows really very much about it, and you never see it in museum exhibits because nobody knows really how to reconstruct it. You know, you can't you can't really put it in a, a picture because because nobody knows where the world fits. And so Ray just, he just glommed onto it and he started, he wanted to draw it. It was a monster in his mind and he loved, you know, weird ancient monsters and this weird ancient sharky thing just grabbed his imagination. And so he started trying to find information about it and, and, uh, the paleontologist who originally showed it to him suggested that he talk to uh, a retired paleontologist named uh, Reiner Zangrel, who had worked at the Field Museum. And Zangrel wrote the Handbook of Paleoichthyology, the volume on chondrichthys, so the ancient cartilaginous fish that includes sharks and skates and rays and ratfish. And so Ray called uh, Reiner, and and Reiner sort of took him under his wing. He was he was a Swiss immigrant, and and um, so he helped Ray kind of get started. And then, but Reiner wasn't really an expert on Helicoprion, and so Ray found his way to a Danish paleontologist, Sven Bendix Omgreen, and he and Ray called just he picks up the phone and just cold calls these scientists. He called Bendix Omgreen, who was at dinner in, you know, Copenhagen one night and said, Hey, I'm really curious about these about these these animals and I happen to see a paper you wrote in the sixties and Reiner and uh Bendix Omgreen were retired and elderly men by then, but Ray did correspond with both of them and and Reiner was a little bit more um a little like more encouraging, I think, than Bendix Omgreen. Bendix Omgreen just said, "You you know, you can't draw this animal because you don't know enough about this animal." And he's like, "Yeah, but I want to draw it." So, um, but both of those men eventually died within about a year of each other, and so then Ray was sort of left with with nobody, no no scholars who had been pursuing a study of Helicoprion. So he kind of kept the he kept the the flame going, and he he became Ray became really the repository of information about Helicoprion. He had assembled all the papers that had been written, and he sort of had a, a mental inventory of where the fossils were, and you know in what collections. But no one had been interested for a long time, and so he had kind of moved on to other things. And that's when in 2010. Jesse Pruitt, an undergraduate at Idaho State University, called him out of the blue um, because he had seen a fossil in the museum at the Idaho State, um, the Idaho Natural History Museum. And somebody said, "Well, you should call. You should call that Ray Troll. I think he knows something about that." So that's sort of the spark that led to this most recent um, scientific breakthroughs from Team Helico. And the breakthroughs were just how this tooth whorl actually was uh, situated in the mouth, how it, how it was uh, situated so that it would work. Because it was understood that it was vertical, but people really didn't understand how it could be affixed so that it was functional. 
Right, right. And actually, um, so Jesse was looking for an undergraduate research project, and um, he that's how he came to talk to Ray, and Ray suggested to Jesse that Jesse call, just like Ray had done, call the experts in the field. There were about, you know, three of them. And so Jesse did call those experts, and the first one that he talked to said, you're not going to learn anything new about this, you know, about this animal. You're sort of wasting everybody's time. And the second person that he called said, well, yes, there's really not much more to learn until we find new fossils. But then the third person that he called, who was Michael Coates at the University of Chicago, said, really, the key to learning more about this animal is to find something other than teeth because chondrichthians, they don't fossilize well because they're not bony, so they don't leave fossils like dinosaurs do. So um, Michael Coates said to Jesse, you know, um, you know, there's stuff you can do, but, but nobody's really going to advance helicoprion science until you find something other than teeth. Well, as it turned out, in Bendix Omgreen's 1966 paper, he had studied one of the Idaho fossils and it looked to him like the like the rock might contain fossilized jaw material. And so, but, you know, nobody connected the dots until Ray and Jesse were talking on the phone, and Ray said, you should look for Idaho 4 because Bendix Omgri, that's the, was the name of the fossil, Idaho 4, you should look for that fossil, Idaho 4, because Bendix Omgreen in his 1966 paper said he thought there might be fossilized jaw material in there. But it didn't... It didn't do Bendix Omgreen any good at that time because the technology wasn't available to, you know, to peer into the rocks. But voila, here we are, you know, 2010, we have CT scanning machines and really powerful CT scanning machines that they use for industrial purposes that really can look through that rock. And so, so, so Jesse and Leaf you know, ran down and found Idaho 4 and they're like, oh my God, we do have this. And so they were able to to find some money. You know, they're on like undergraduate research budget, which is nothing. But they were able to find some money and take the fossil to Texas to a special um, fossil scanning facility. And they scanned the fossil, and by golly, there was jaw material in there, which is what their their paper really um, hinged on. Was the first time. It was what Michael Coates had been talking about. It was the first time anyone had been able to identify and reveal fossilized material related to helicoprion other than teeth. And it showed the world, the impression of the world in place in the, in the jaw. And so they were able to finally say for the first time in a hundred years, okay, this is how, this is it. This is how it worked. This is where it fit. Um, so that was the, that was the big, the big splash of the of their work. And there's a lot of detail that we won't go into, but it's really just the basically two months of of examining each individual image of the CAT scan and by hand uh, showing some of the contrasts more clearly so that the image would really be explanatory because the 
the background material and the stuff that they were interested in was so close in density that the CAT scan wasn't by itself doing a good enough job of differentiating them. So it's just, it's an amazing story of just persistence and, and stubbornness and curiosity. Yeah. And it's just great. And, and what I really liked about the book was the illustration of how science gets done sometimes it's mm -hmm. it's this massive uh undifferentiated group effort that then sort of comes together when enough people have stumbled onto or not stumbled but actually were looking for the 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 clues that make it possible to actually make the discovery it's an right. amazing and, story right and there and there actually was a lot of stumbling onto things. That was one of the things I loved about this story. There's so much serendipity and so much kind of stumbling around until, you know, like somebody stumbles and then somebody really looks. And and I, I love that about the story and the the sort of outsider science. I mean these the people that, that did this work, they they weren't they weren't even vertebrate paleontologists, all of them. Um, you know, invertebrate paleontologists and an undergraduate student and an artist and a biologist. And they were just driven by their passion and their curiosity. And you, you hit it right on the head, their stubbornness. And it was just, you know, just so fun and so wild to, to track these folks. And, and one of the things I love about, about the story too, what I really found so interesting is that Helicoprion, this animal, you know, from a, from the discovery of the first fossil in the late 1880s in Australia through 2013, through this work, you know, we can use one, this one animal to really track the changing nature of scientific inquiry. Um, you know, the tools have changed, the attitudes have changed, the people have changed, the processes have changed that, um, you know, what we know has changed. And so it's really cool to be able to use this animal to, to track, to track that changing nature of scientific inquiry. And, and also in the, the science in the context of, of history, you know, um, American history and Russian history and European history. It's just such a great, rich story. I, I, I felt so lucky to be able to, to try to tell it. That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where you can also check out the article titled, Forget Sharks, Seven Things in the Water Swimmers Should Actually Fear. It's the microbes that should scare you. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.